Hey everyone, and welcome to At The Letters. Ben Nicholson-Smith here with you. Arden Welling sitting just a few feet away. This week's episode produced by Gaytan Harris and Nick Andrade. So thanks to both of them. Arden, how's it going? We're here at spring. Yeah, good. Thanks to uh, the Blue Jays, I guess, or the TD Ballpark staff who may not know that we're even doing this in the uh, home visitors radio booth. I don't know if it's home, if it's visitors, but we're in a booth here after a uh, Blue Jays and uh, Pirates tied Grapefruit League game. Uh, Lots to get to in the course of this podcast. Um, James Click is a member of the Toronto Blue Jays front office. The Jays are playing games. We've got prospects who are impressing we've got some big leaguers who are making their spring debuts really i mean it's kind of wild when you're down here just how much information you get compared to the off season where there's really not that same flow of information so we've got a ton to get to but arden you were just on the broadcast let's get to that first because it's kind of fun here in florida the jays of course playing their games I'm sitting in the shade, working on some stories. You're down there in the camera bay, absolutely roasting in the sun for about an hour and a half. But what was your impression? You were on there with Buck and and Ben Wagner, of course. How did that go? Yeah, I'm happy to be out of the sun at this time. Uh, I forget what the actual temperature was, but it was spicy uh, here on, what is it, Thursday, March the 2nd here in Dunedin. So I'm happy to be in this radio booth. Like, I'll actually, I'll show people right now. Like, look, this is the radio booth you're watching on video. There's Ben, (laughs) literally right there. But yeah, that was my first broadcast, man. Um, now as part of the uh, the TV broadcast team. Today I was on with, uh, as you said, Ben Wagner and Buck Martinez and looking forward to getting to work with Joe Siddle and uh, Dan Schulman, obviously. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm working with Hazel May regularly and you know, Jamie Campbell. Um, and those are just like the folks in front of the scene that, that are in front of the camera that you see every night. Like there are so many talented and passionate people behind the scenes and I could go on, but like, you know, Doug Walton and Andrew Stokely, you know, Troy Clara, like some of these people who have been helping me uh, learn how to do something very new and very outside my comfort zone has been awesome. And they've been so welcoming. And like, we know this from doing it um, sort of in the analyst role on the TV broadcast over several years, but like these people work so extremely hard and they're so passionate and they produce such an exceptional broadcast and I am now joining it and just trying to live up to the level of it. I just don't want the standard to drop whatever I, uh, whenever I am on air. So uh, it's, it's a lot of pressure and it's challenging because it's new for me, but it's like a lot of fun and it was cool just to get that first rep today because this is something that i've obviously been thinking about and preparing for for weeks and weeks and weeks so it's cool to finally be doing it yeah the announcement came out a few weeks ago but you know i imagine it's one of those things that you know in the abstract okay it's kind of a cool possibility and then physically even like you're in a different space like for people who weren't watching today's broadcast arden is right beside the blue jays dugout in the camera area there just uh near first base in this case like you're physically very very close to the game vladimir guerrero jr's bag was right beside my feet or i hope you pushed it out of the way i told him who was the more important person (laughs) in that situation i helped myself to some batting gloves uh yeah when so after like he remember that ball that he laced to like left center guerrero with a drive to left to the wall run down by young and he came back and he kind of looked at me and like gave me a look and like shook his head and I was like, it just missed it. And he was like, yeah, just inside of it. Right. So it was kind of like, you know, you don't get to have those kind of interactions all the time. Probably not going to happen in regular right. season. It's spring training. Right. So everybody's relaxed and loose and guys are probably joking around with me a lot more down there than, uh, than they normally would. But yeah, it's like you're in. 
the dugout with and i'm in that camera well with like you know ali khan who does the social stuff for the blue jays john Wu who collects a lot of their you know the content that you see for them on on youtube and, and on twitter instagram like we're all crammed in down there those guys are doing their jobs there's a lot of activity but it's uh it's a super cool vantage point to watch the game from well exactly and as we go behind the scenes on atl in the course of the season i mean you'll have that vantage point a lot um and so hopefully we can hear those insights because you know i always find and like here as you said we're sitting in the home radio booth both of us have have called uh spring games from this spot before with ben wagner and, and years past with mike wilner and um it's a really cool vantage point it's a really cool way to kind of view the game and i think each role that i've ever done you kind of get a new perspective so i'm assuming that that'll probably be the case as things unfold and hopefully you can share those insights on the pod yeah totally i probably can't share too much but i'm you know it's i'm when i'm down there i'm not thinking podcast like i'm thinking about executing on the broadcast right and i'm thinking about doing the best job that i can in the uh not hazel may role <laughs> in the, that's every right. time i come on screen everyone is saying where's hazel may you're not hazel day uh so i'm you know i'm kind of focused on that but yeah i mean even just in the course of doing that job i'm having uh like a ton of conversations every day because i'm just trying to gather as much as possible and like talk to as many players as possible and as many you know coaches and any front office people that are kicking around and, and trying to just kind of glean as much information into the team so yeah it can only you know help me bring more to uh the podcast throughout the year well that's good still making time for the pod now that you're on the tv right this is good this is good you haven't you haven't ditched us for the greener pastures that's right you present that like it was a choice yeah. <laughs> um we'll continue that thread um, as the season unfolds. But yeah, there there really is a lot of action to get to on the field and even off the field. I'll start with a broad question here. Who have you seen in spring that's kind of jumped out to you uh, in the course of the time that you've been here so far? Uh, I mean, it's impossible not to be impressed by what Ricky Tiedemann did the other day, obviously. Uh, Addison Barger, you know, impressive. Like, And these are guys that we don't get to see a ton throughout the course of the season. You can pull up sort of the minor league games or you can watch the highlights, but actually seeing it up close, you do get more of a sense for just the talent level there. Uh, as far as big leaguers, I mean, I watched Jose Brios in Clearwater and I thought his sinker looked great and that was huge. I mean, he was, he had that thing on the edges where last year, far too often, we talked about this last week, it was over the heart of the plate. So I thought his sinker like looked really, really good. Um, Hagen Danner has looked awesome. That's a guy who, if he doesn't get hurt last April, I think would have pitched in the big leagues last year. Absolutely electric stuff, like upper 90s power slider. You saw it at the Arizona Fall League, um, the way he was blowing away hitters and uh, just some of the velocity that he was showing. And then, uh, you know, shout out Spencer Horwitz, who's had some nice, uh, some interesting plate appearances, like showing a very professional approach. And Otto Lopez today, a guy who, you know, hit a, a line drive late in that game. And that's so huge for him because he makes such great contact, but so much of it has been on the ground over the course of his career. And he's making some swing changes with Guillermo Martinez in, in the cages and, and working on some different things. Lines it up the middle, a base hit into center. Like I know how important that was for him and how pleased the Blue Jays would have been to see him come up with that line drive here late on Thursday because that's exactly what he's trying to do. Because if he can maintain that contact but get the ball just kind of a bit more line drive exit angle off of his bat, uh, he could really change the uh, the power numbers uh, and tap into that speed to race into second, have some more extra base hits to go with like an already like the guy's hitting 300 in the minor leagues. So. 
that's a big step for him. Well, Otto Lopez has a chance to make this team uh, out of spring. He'll play for Canada at the WBC. Uh, some infield. He played center field the other day for the Jays. So he's definitely a name to watch as the Jays try to fill out this roster. You mentioned some of the prospects, and I really want to get to Ricky Tiedemann. But um, Addison Barger, I mean, this is a guy. He fills out a uniform. He can definitely have for a lot of power. Um, and he can play some infield for you. You know, he's already impressed uh, going deep in spring already. And at this point, like, you know, he's obviously not a candidate to break camp with the team, but, you know, he's putting himself on that radar as far as midseason, something happens, you need a player, you need a bat. Like he, he actually could, and he's, I want to say 23, 24 years old too. So he's a kid, but he's not, you know, it's not like he's, you know, Tiedemann's only 20. So there's a bit of a difference there. So what are you seeing from Barger as far as what he's doing so far this spring? It's just electric bat speed. I mean, we don't have the bat speed data for big leaguers. Uh, certainly don't have it for minor leaguers, but I would love to see how he measures up against some of the higher bat speed guys in the majors. Um, already, like the exit velocities that you see from him, this guy would easily be a top 100 exit velo guy in MLB. Like, wow. He like, absolutely barrels the ball. And the just the hand speed, the bat speed is has really stood out to me. Like I saw him against David Bednar uh, the other day in Bradenton. I want to say we were all these Florida towns kind of blend together sometimes. I'm pretty sure that was in Bradenton. And like Bednar, like Pirates closer, 96 away from Addison Barger. And like his bat is so fast. He turns on this ball and pulls it and somehow keeps it fair and hits it a million feet out over the wall. And this is a guy in Barger who is like standing all over the plate, big leg kick, tries to hit every ball 700 feet. Uh, it's just really impressive. Some of those, like some of those actions at the plate. And we haven't even actually seen his arm at third yet, or at least I haven't. Maybe you've seen it, but like I haven't seen him get, you know, get to show it off. He might have the biggest arm at third base in this organization. So I'm looking forward to see that as well. I mean, that's a bold statement considering who's playing third base at the major league level <laughs> and Matt Chapman. Yeah. I'm not um, just saying that. No, I know, I know. Um, do you know offhand what his exit velo numbers are? At Arizona, uh, his max exit velo was 109. He had a 44.4% hard hit rate in the AFL. Uh, and then in the Blue Jays system, he's actually been up to 112. Wow. So okay. like, we're talking, like, yeah, legit stuff. Yeah. I mean, so for reference, I mean, the very, very best in the game get maybe 118 to 120. That's Otani. That's Giancarlo Stanton. Vlad Jr.'s in that every year. Um, you know, a very good major league player might max out at like 106, 107. 112 like, would be like Andrew Vaughn or Javi Baez yeah. in that range. That's that's really good. Um, that's actually a perfect uh, chance to move on to Ricky Tiedemann because Javi Baez was the first big league hitter that Ricky Tiedemann faced right here in Dunedin a couple days ago. And Tiedemann didn't even realize who he was facing when he... Uh, saw you know the Tigers hitter coming up to the plate. Do you believe he him was, when he says that? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I'm not in the business of trying to read minds here. How could you um, not know? Uh, yeah, I think I, I was watching him really closely. So sitting not far from where we are right now, and it's a pretty good view from the press box, and I bring my binoculars to spring training, 
And so I was just kind of training them on uh, Ricky Tiedemann to watch him. Ben's that guy in the press <laughs> box with his binoculars. <laughs> well, I mean, I want to see them. You know, I want to yeah. know what's happening. I'm, I'm here for a reason. I'm not just going to, you know, sit in the stands and, and you know, put my feet up. I want to know what's going on. So, you know, I have my binoculars on Ricky Tiedemann, and I'm just trying to get a sense for how he's preparing and, and, and really facing these hitters. And I, I was struck by, I kind of almost do believe I say almost because I'm not totally sold, but I almost do believe that he didn't know who was hitting um, because he was locked in. He was really composed. His eyes were just down, looking at the plate, pre preparing, throwing, getting the ball back, and and really throwing with some great results. 98 to 99 miles an hour against Baez. He struck him out, then got a ground ball off the bat of Austin Meadows, and then got another strikeout against Matt Vierling on a changeup. So, you know, that's three major league hitters. And, of course, like, it's one inning. We don't want to read too much into it. Like Tiedemann could go out and post a six ERA at double A this year. Like these things are still on the table. We don't know what's going to happen. I'm not trying to go over the top with the hype here, but as far as debuts go, it literally was best case scenario. And he did exactly what the Blue Jays would want to see from him. Yeah. I take nothing away from the stuff that he demonstrated in that outing, right? Because like obviously the velo from the left side and look, he's not going to be carrying 99 through a start right so people say oh there's a starter he's throwing 99 that's not what's gonna happen at a start he's throwing one inning right but still big time velo from the left side the slider is great i love his change up and i love how his change up works off the rest of his repertoire right works off of the fastball up and the slider moving one way and then that change up just falls off it's great stuff but i know you'll remember this early in 2020 camp right before the pandemic shut everything down when we were all unknowingly breathing COVID all over one another. Remember when Nate Pearson went to face the Pittsburgh Pirates? I remember when he was blowing 99 past big league hitters. Remember that Josh Bell strikeout where Bell like dropped the bat? Um, the, the pitch just like got up in his kitchen and maybe he swung maybe the called strike was like 99 from Pearson and it was the same conversation this guy's got to start on the big league club this guy is the future this guy's going to be an amazing starter well here we are three years later and you're still trying to figure it out with Nate Pearson so definitely some trepidation is warranted when it comes to Ricky Tiedemann here but like take nothing away from the stuff that he's demonstrating because that does not grow on trees exactly I mean most pitchers run into some sort of interruptions by the time they establish themselves in the major leagues. And and sometimes that takes years. Obviously, that's what we're seeing from Pearson, who was pretty good today, just as a quick aside there. We'll see what he can what he can do as he continues to try to, you know, push closer toward the Blue Jays roster. Um, but, you know, in the case of of Tiedemann, it's it's really interesting because Pearson was 23 when he debuted. Alec Manoa was 23 when he debuted. Ricky Tiedemann is 20 years old. This is a big guy. Like he's you know, bigger than I thought. He's six four, like well over two hundred pounds. You know, big, big dude. Um, and there's a lot of development there potentially, but he's on an accelerated path. Like you start looking at, you know, just his age and where he's at. He's going to start the year. You know, chances are nothing's written in stone. Chances are he's going to start at Double A and go from there. This is a guy who has a chance to impact in the major leagues this year when he's 20, 21 years old. I mean, this is a accelerated time frame, and he's really showing the Jays some impressive stuff. Oh, he's going to start the year in double-A, Ben. I asked somebody the other day, I said, Ricky Tiedemann's starting the year in double-A, right? And the person looked at me and said, Arden, he has 11 double-A innings. Yeah. 
he's starting the year at double well, A. All I mean by that is, you know, <laughs> could <laughs> he start in high A for a couple games? Oh, or, you, you know what I mean? Even further or, down. or could he be a triple A? Like, the no. point being, he's not going to be in the major leagues. He's not going to start in the major leagues. He's not going to start at triple A. He's going to start at double A. And that's where he should start, honestly, as 11 double A innings. The guy hasn't surpassed five innings in a start in his professional career, hasn't surpassed 85 pitches in a start in his professional career, right? Like right, the innings load um, overall in 22 was somewhere around 85. 78 innings. 78, yep. right? The Blue Jays are going to be very deliberate about how they build him up because they don't just want Ricky Tiedemann to be this uh, high-octane reliever out of the bullpen. Like They want him to be Alec Manoa. They don't want him to be a flash in the pan. They don't want to be three years down in the situation they are with Nate Pearson now with Ricky Tiedemann. They want to build him up to be like at the top of their rotation. They want him making playoff starts in 2025 and 2026. Maybe 2024. Maybe. So I, <laughs> look, here's the thing. I think that his workload progression this year will be deliberate with that in mind, with how he could impact the club in September and possibly in October. So maybe he even starts with shorter outings in 2023, just to hold him back a little bit. Maybe they go back to the model that they used with him last year, where midseason they pulled him out of competition and they used that development list to bring him to Dunedin, get him in the pitching lab to check things out. Like I've talked to people who were there and they're like, yeah, all of his stuff, like all of his metrics is all the same, like the strength, the arm, you know, the release point, all that stuff was all the same as in spring training. Like this kid works hard. His routines are solid. I mean, he maintained at that point, we were so impressed, but maybe they use that model again, just depending on how a workload is going. Cause I do think they will be mindful of the fact that yes, this is somebody who could be very impactful for us at the big league level in September or October this year. But then that is going to influence how he pitches, how long he pitches, how often he pitches, where he pitches in April, May, June, July. And that's why these outings are significant because when he gets the chance to step in there against the Tigers, whose you know big league lineup is still on the field at that point in the game, it's a great chance for him to test himself and for the Jays to assess how is he responding in these situations how is he throwing his secondary pitches? What's his command like? What's his composure like? I mean, what am I missing there as far as, you know, I guess it's preparation. Uh, there are a lot of these things beyond that box score that the Jays look for when they're trying to assess how a prospect progresses through the minors. Recovery in between outings, arm care, sleep, nutrition, how you live your life, all that stuff goes into it. It's all the stuff that like Alec Manoa dominates. At. Like we were talking about on a recent podcast, he is the here at 5.30 in the morning guy. Like he's the guy. Have you ever seen Alec Manoa around the facility just like kind of goofing around, right? <laughs> the guy is always, he's carrying weighted balls or he's, you know, doing his routine with his football. He's coming from the weight room. He's drenched in sweat. He's doing this. He's doing that, right? Like he's, it's all of that work that you don't see in the three hours that a game is on every night. So that's going to be the stuff that really separates Ricky Tiedemann and convinces the Blue Jays to move him up. He might go out to double A um, and through the first, I don't know, seven, eight, nine outings, just show that the level isn't challenging him anymore. And at that point, the Blue Jays will say, you're not learning anything at double A anymore. You're not getting better from facing these hitters. Now we'll advance you to triple A. I mean, very best case scenario, fastest scenario, like June, uh, probably mid-season, somewhere around there, maybe after he comes, you know, if he comes back to the pitching lab again, we'll see. By the way, that 
developmental model as an aside of pulling guys out and bringing them into Dunedin midseason using the development list is something you're going to see the Blue Jays do more of this year. I think you're going to see them do that with more pitchers as they try to just develop guys a little differently and manage workloads and have those midseason check-ins. I think they learned a lot from the model with Tiedemann. But yeah, he could be up the AAA by midseason. It's going to depend, like you said, on all of that off-field stuff that goes beyond the box score. Yeah, it's it's going to be really interesting. I'd be really fascinated to see him in the majors at some point this year. Um, so we'll see where that goes. But let's touch also on Manoa. You know, he's probably the rarity in this, where he's that pitching prospect who comes up through the minors, does amazing, gets to the majors, does amazing. Like there hasn't really been an interruption for him, and it was occurring to me. You know, he was talking when you were on the broadcast today um, down the right field line, talking to I was talking to Manoa with a few of the other media members. And I, I kind of asked him, like, hey, this is your first chance, really, to have a normal spring. Because 2021, he basically had to prove himself. He wasn't a major leaguer. 2022, it was this weird accelerated spring where there was so much pressure to really get your work done in a hurry. And I think that impacted the whole camp in a lot of different ways. But in particular for Manoa, whereas now he's an established starter, a Cyan finalist, and he's finally able to go through the camp at his own pace, at his own progression. Yeah, and credit to him, he's working on some very small things at this camp, but like they could be really meaningful to him. He wants to hit less batters going forward. He's led uh, at least the American League, if not MLB, and hit batters each of the last two years. And to him, it's like, I don't need to give away those just those extra base runners. We're not talking about a ton of base runners here. We're talking 15 or 16, but he's like, yeah, if that's eight, uh, that's just fewer base runners, fewer chances of, of damage against me, of me running into the home run ball at the worst possible time. He wants to improve his change up. And uh, like I literally just got off of a broadcast and did not have Savant open, but just watching his change up today looks different. Um, and I would like to look at some of the metrics from it today and actually talk to him about some of the changes he's made with it today because he has been holding those cards sort of close to the vest at this point in spring when you ask him about the changeup, because I don't think he really wants to tip anybody off yet, but now he's actually throwing it in games, so there's no denying what the what the break is on it and what the velo is on it. So I I did like how his changeup looked today, and I know that's a big focus for him. And he just wants to like generally work ahead more often, and it's he just wants to do some of those little things that are going to help him over the course of a season. If like say some bad ball luck turns against him this year, right? Like say some of those balls in play, it's drop in, clang off a wall, whatever. You get bad calls from the ump, like just say some of that baseball stuff happens that increases his ERA this year, he can help pull some of that back by taking care of some of those little things. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, it sounds like he's eager to do that um, on, a, on a good pace to be able to get built up fully for opening day. Uh, before we take a bit of a break here on At The Letters, let's also touch on Yusei Kikuchi. Uh, we were there in Sarasota, Florida yesterday watching Kikuchi against the Orioles. And again, I mean, I know, you know, we were almost kidding about it on a recent episode about the Yusei Kikuchi hype. Now here I am contributing to it because he looked, he did look good. Um, and, you know, it's a totally different challenge to do it in Sarasota than it is to do it at Yankee Stadium. But, I mean, he was good. You can't take that away from him. And forgive me for not remembering the remembering the particulars, but he walked the first batter of his second inning. Yep. 
and I forget who he was facing. It was Arias. Was it? Yeah. yeah. And he was kind of battling with the pitch clock at that point. Like he was wanting to get right down to the one and uh, yeah, was missing all over the place. And I know for a fact that John Schneider and Pete Walker turned to each other in the dugout and said, let's see what happens now. Because they saw that story with him before last year where you walked the first batter of an inning on four pitches and now you go 3-0 to the next guy and you leave a cookie over the plate and now these runners are second and third and then you walk the next guy on a full count pitch and now your pitch count in the innings up to 18 and you're sweating and you're doing a lot of body movement on the mound and things are getting long on you and then boom right off goes like extra bases so credit to Yusei Kikuchi came right back firing strikes like composed himself came right back in the zone and three quick outs. So that's what you want to see is that type of stuff. Like, I think that was big for him. I'm still just personally going to need to see him do it in a major league game because it is different doing it in front of like 6,000, uh, you know, sextagenarians in, uh, in, in, in Florida here versus at Fenway park in front of however many thousand rowdy Fenway, uh, patrons but it's it's encouraging so far what he is doing i like that new slurve thing that he's throwing it seems to be getting swing and miss seems to be keeping hitters off balance uh we'll see like his pitch mix really evolved over the course of last season so we'll see how it continues to evolve this season but what i kept hearing all last year was like if he just throws his breaking ball hard and down it's effective when he gets kind of loopy with the breaking ball, kind of long with it. When he gets slow with the breaking ball, damage. When he throws cutters up, damage. But if he throws that like high 80s breaking ball down in the zone, it's a real weapon. So it looks like he's starting to find that. Just stay in the zone. Same for Tiedemann too. He's got great stuff. Just stay in the zone. So that'll be something to watch here for those two guys. All right, we'll come back in a moment here on At The Letters. And when we do, we'll talk more about Alejandro Kirk and James Click. Listen to At The Letters ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome back to At The Letters. Ben Nicholson-Smith, still here with Arden Swelling. The stadium is now quiet. The leaf blowers are done. That's good. That can be a curse, really, to the uh, to any sort of uh, broadcasting efforts that we try to do. So we've dodged. I'm going to jinx it now, but I think we've dodged the leaf blowers <laughs> yeah. for today. Security guy is going to barge in. And yeah, it's like, yeah, still here. You, you caused me to look at the clock. We have now passed 5 p.m. Yes. Eastern. Uh, yeah, I, I rolled into the PDC at like 7.15 this morning. Yeah. So it's been a very, honestly... Typical spring training day. It's uh, it, right. It is. It is a typical spring day. We got a great view here. I wish we could share it with our um, with our audience. Um, many, most of whom are listening, but some of whom can see us inside the booth. But we got a great view of the field that is now quiet. But a couple of days ago, here, Chris Bassett was on the mound making his spring debut and working with Danny Jansen. That's going to be a process. It's going to take a bit of time to to get to know you know a, a new team and maybe for Bassett more so than for some other new pitchers. Yeah, that's going to take some time. <laughs> you could even see in that outing a lot of shaking, a lot of communication between Bassett and Jansen. Like Bassett is like renowned for being a guy who's very particular about how he likes his catchers to set up the lanes that they're in. He's very particular about the pitches that are called. I mean, he's a classic guy who should be using the reverse pitch calm. Um, interesting. Jose Barrios was using it the other day in Clearwater with Rob Brandt. And uh, and like Brantley hadn't caught him before, so if Brantley flashed 
the process they used was Brantley flashed two signs and Brios didn't like either of them. Brios would punch it in. It was kind of on his hip. Nice. Uh, so just to avoid clock violations, essentially. Uh, but he still was like, look, I want to follow the catcher's, catcher's game plan and catchers have a good idea of what's going on with swings at the plate and where hitters are setting up. But that was kind of the process they used. Uh, yeah, I, I also talked to another pitcher the other day who said, by midseason, every starter is going to want to use this. <laughs> like, this yeah. is going to be really common if you're allowed to use it in regular season. It hasn't actually been approved for regular season use yet, although I imagine it will be. The like pitchcom from catcher to pitcher started this way, where they said we'll just test it in the spring and then see if we approve it for regular season. But that's interesting. But anyway, yeah, like Bassett is classic. You know, very very meticulous uh, and very very stringent about how he likes his catchers to set up, to receive, to set targets, when to set up. So that's going to be a process. Danny Jansen for sure. And, and just to go back quickly to the reverse pitch con. So to clarify, this is the pitcher calling it off yeah. of his body rather than the catcher, which actually, when you think about it, kind of makes more sense to begin with. Depends. Um, depending I, on the pitcher, right? And, and depending on how you want to go about things. But I talked to a pitcher the other day about it who said, I don't want to use it because I'm not that smart. Yeah. I just leave that stuff to the catcher and I throw what they put down. I don't want to have to think about game plans. I just want to think about executing. But for some pitchers, and Hyunjin Ryu would be in this category, like he has an idea of what he wants to do. And it's not an idea that's easily disrupted. No. And guys like Chris Bassett, who have like nothing shorter than seven or eight pitches on their Savant page, they actually just added another one for Chris Bassett because Savant just broke out sweepers from sliders. So now Bassett has a cutter, a slider, and a sweeper, which all move the same way, but it's like three sort of variations of the same pitch at different velocities and different movements, ball moving the same direction. Uh, I actually confirmed with uh, with Chris that he he supports breaking out the sweeper. He thinks they have classified that correctly. But he also told me some things on there not classified correctly, uh, but he doesn't want the other side to know exactly uh, what pitches those are. A little a little mystique uh, on his side, um, which actually is probably good. I mean, Baseball Savant gives so much information away, and I can see as a pitcher, you might not want that so clearly labeled for your opponents. As much as there are any secrets in this game, there still seem to be some secrets with Chris Bassett. It was interesting, too, seeing his velocity out of the shoot in his first outing, and he was like, yeah, I I'm not throwing as hard as I'm going to in the regular season. It's February. I'm trying to pitch in October. Yeah. Uh, I'm not trying to like light up the radar gun here and be on the IL by May. I'm in this for the long run. I've learned like this is how I haul innings is by building up very deliberately at this time in spring. Yeah, exactly. It's It was kind of funny when he said that, and you kind of think of it as like yeah people at home like they're lacing up boots you know they got their winter tires on like this is not the time of year that you want to be going 100 percent. and it is different if you're a prospect like tiedemann this is your chance to impress you got to take advantage of it or if you're kikuchi you know you probably don't want to ease in too slowly to things um you want to show um everyone involved including himself that he's ready to to go but bassett it's his eighth year in the major leagues he doesn't have to necessarily show on day one his max velocity so it makes sense yeah it's a little different when you just sign like a three-year free agent contract for 20 million a year versus when you're yeah, 20 years old at your first big league spring training you're not even on the 40-man roster yet. <laughs> you're not even in the union yet uh but yeah, i do it does make me think right because they're all still pitchers so certain pitchers that we're seeing coming out 
now, particularly starters, I get the relievers a little different, but particularly starters who are throwing 99 now, who are throwing like upper 90s today, what's that going to mean for them in August? What's that going to mean for them in June? Minor league guys who, you know, maybe have a shorter season, major league guys who like maybe want to try to still be pitching in October, throwing that hard now. What's that going to mean about main, you know, for maintaining that over six, seven, eight months? Yeah, the pressure is very different for those younger players compared to some of the older ones. And it's kind of funny how it can actually change really quickly. And I was talking to Kevin Bishu about this the other day because, you know, he's a guy, he's entering his fifth major league season, which, you know, as he put it, is kind of crazy. He's about to turn 28 years old. He's not a kid in this game anymore. And neither are Vlad Jr. and Bo Bichette. You know, you look at the way they interact with other players around the league. You look at their stature in the league. These guys are young vet they're young men, but they're young veterans in this league already, in contrast to someone like a Barger or a Tiedemann. It's just it's kind of remarkable. Biggio was saying, you know, he can remember pretty vividly, as I'm sure most, if not all, of our ATL listeners can, Justin Smoke, Troy Tulowitzki, Josh Donaldson. I mean, we've covered these guys, Arden. Like we know it goes by really quick. The life cycle of a major league player is so fast. And it happens so quickly, you know, it's it's kind of wild when you think about that in the span of like four or five years. It's on the broadcast today in the dugout with Edwin Encarnacion. Yeah. Edwin has had one three-homer game. High and deep to right. Right beside me in the dugout. I was like, hey, Eddie, yep. <laughs> I covered you. Right. And now here he is as the coach around like the batting cages. He's going to be going over to the minor league side and like helping some minor leaguers who like uh, amazing. What a guy to learn about hitting from. Right. Uh, and yeah, he's around this camp. Uh, like we, you know, Paul Quantrill has been around Victor Martinez. Yeah. Around. Victor Martinez. It was, wasn't that long ago that he was in the league and really good. So it does go fast. You mentioned Biggio. How about Calvin Biggio, uh, like calling John Schneider this off season and asking him like, Hey, or don't be afraid to play me in the outfield. I want more reps. Well, exactly. I mean, this was a really interesting conversation and it's kind of unique. I mean, Biggio and Schneider go back a long way. They've known each other since Biggio was drafted in 2016. And so there's more of an open communication there than there would be between your standard utility player to first year manager relationship. And Biggio straight up said to Schneider, like, I am kind of frustrated by how little you played me last year. And I want to be in the outfield more. I think I'm more capable of playing that. It was all done professionally. I talked to them both about it in the last couple of days. And, you know, it was a very professional conversation. Neither one of them seems, you know, at all upset about it, but it was an honest, candid conversation. And then it ended with Schneider saying to Biggio, we're going to get you into the outfield more. We're going to get you into right field along with his second base and first base work. And so on days that Springer is DHing, on days that, you know, Springer's off for whatever reason, right field is empty. I think we're going to see a fair bit of Kevin Biggio there. I think he's going to play more this year than he did last year. We'll like obviously see how that goes. Um, I think he's probably going to face some lefties this year. It's- he wants to. He wants to, and I think he believes that he can hit left-handed pitching and just hasn't had the opportunity to. We'll see how that goes. Like That mix with him, Santiago Espinal, Whit Merrifield is going to play a ton. Like I do think that 
early last year, it very quickly fell in the favor of Santiago Espinal playing very regularly, and he was an all-star over the first half, so credit to him, but perhaps some flaws in his swing got exposed over the second half. And then the club goes out and gets with Merrifield, and then it was essentially like a rotation between Espinal, Merrifield, and Biggio down the stretch. It's just going to be interesting to see how that playing time breaks out and then you've got an ass and barger knocking on the door at triple a i mean you've got a like a spencer horowitz who could factor into the first base mix we saw him playing right field today um he's on the 40 man and he has like one of the most professional plate approaches in this organization like does not give plate appearances away and over the course of 500 600 of those i mean that could be the difference of like 20 30 points on your batting average um like i think spencer horowitz is going to be a guy who's going to get some major league plate appearances this year so yeah there's there's a lot of players sort of in that mix it's just going to be interesting to see how kevin biggio runs with some increased playing time early in the season yeah it really will and there could be some dh at backs kind of factoring in at least you know one level removed for guys like springer or vlad jr if either one of those guys is dhing that opens things up for Biggio um, to get in there. If Brandon Belt suffers an injury, Spencer Horowitz is probably the guy there, right? Yeah, and real quick on Belt. So he hasn't played yet. The Jays say he's still on track to play, should be able to get a couple of weeks of games in. They're saying that's not a concern. Uh, to me, it's got to be a bit of a concern. But I don't know where you land. My understanding coming into spring was that they were going to be deliberate with him coming off of the knee procedure because he's not a center fielder. So he's not like the position he plays and his role in this team, which is primarily DH and a little bit of spelling Vladdy at first. It's not as demanding. You don't need as much time to build up for it. He's a guy who says he doesn't need that many uh, plate appearances in spring to get ready for the season. I like saw him out there doing defensive drills today, working on relays. So like he was participating in on-field stuff today. Just isn't in games yet. So yeah, I'm not going to raise the concern flag just yet. But like it, this is a guy who's dealt with injuries the last you know several seasons, and he believes that he's had what was going on in his knee corrected, and he says he feels as well as he has in years. So you believe him, and you see how it goes. But there's certainly a world where it's like May first, and it's an IL stint for knee inflammation. We'll we'll see how this goes. And, and maybe it's a question too of just you only got so many bullets, you know, you've only got so many stops and starts, so many max effort swings. Maybe you just don't want to use those on March the second. And if that's the case, that's understandable. But it is a time of year where you do kind of try to figure out, you know, whether there should be concern or not. And a week ago this time, we were wondering that with respect to Alejandro Kirk, his ramp up, now we have some certainty. He is not playing for Team Mexico in the WBC. He has now a baby daughter as of a few days ago. Very exciting news for him and his family, of course. And that has allowed him to come back to Blue Jays camp and get ready. And it seems like he's going to have all the time that he needs to get ready for opening day. Yeah, we talked to him this morning. He reported very early this morning. And like, congratulations to him and his partner, Sophia, on uh, their daughter, Amelia, obviously. Uh, and yeah, some of the work for Kirk has already begun in California. Like the Blue Jays sent Luis Hurtado out there. He's their bullpen catcher. Uh, they sent Jose Mayorga out there. He's like uh, a coach at the, uh, the Complex League here in Dunedin. So they were able to get him catching off of high velocity pitching machines and throwing the bases and stuff like that but he hasn't really faced live pitching yet or anything so he's essentially coming into camp 
as a position player would come into camp. So he's going to get like a week, a week and a half of buildup of defensive work on backfields of getting into live BPs. And so he's not going to get into games until late next week. Realistically, same thing for, for belt. So we'll kind of see how this goes. Uh, it's definitely a condensed time frame, but he has the advantage at least of knowing the majority of, of, pitchers on this staff and it looks like he's not getting the chris bassett assignment which is like the most challenging assignment that there is to give there which makes sense because he's such a good pairing with manoa obviously yep. i think he's a good pairing with gosman with the way that gosman likes to work down in the zone and the way that like the uh, framing numbers right, kurt can kind of vacuum things up there so those are two guys that he already knows and that he pairs well with so I don't think that anyone needs to be too worried about him being prepared for opening day. Agreed. I think he'll be ready. I think those concerns are are fast uh, moving away for the Blue Jays and for Kirk. Um, and, you know, he has had the chance to throw to bases. He has had the chance to field some short hops and, and you know, work with a, a pitching machine, a high-velocity machine. That's good. And the one thing that he can do and probably doesn't need, a, you know, as much preparation as some guys is hit. Because he's always been able to hit, and you know that hand-eye coordination isn't going to disappear overnight. Like he's still going to have that short stroke, those bat-to-ball skills, the eye at the plate. Of course, he needs reps. Of course, he's not going to go in there completely cold. Um, but he seems to be in a really good position. Yeah, he rolls out of bed finding barrels. Yeah, <laughs> and then he, he has the vision and discipline at the plate to carry him through periods where maybe his timing isn't quite there uh, because his pitch recognition is so good. His management of the strike zone is so good. So he can still find a way to be productive and like get on base, even if he isn't, uh, you know, hitting that haven't, we've seen these periods from before where there aren't extra base hits there. There isn't a bunch of power, but like there is still on base because he can still, this is still a guy who legitimately could walk more than he strikes out at the big league level, which is crazy. Incredibly hard to do. Yeah, incredibly rare. Um, I think Eddie actually did it once. Did it? I think he did. Uh, he came close anyway. But um, but it's it's tough to do. And I think, you know, it's it's really interesting, actually, when you think about the Jays catching depth chart, because, of course, Danny Jansen will be prominent on that list. And I had the chance to speak to Dalton Varsho this afternoon and kind of ask him, hey, have you, like, have you even put on the catching gear? And the answer was no, he hasn't. He doesn't plan to. So Varsho is, is pretty much... I thought he might be 10 to 12 games catching for the Jays. And then I put it to him. I'm like, it sounds a bit more like it'll be the zero to four range. And he's like, yeah, that's, that's what it's looking like. So he's pretty much an emergency catcher on this team, which kind of means that Rob Brantley is the next guy up if they needed someone to to step in for any period of time. Rob Brantley will play major league games for the Toronto Blue Jays this year. Like that is going to happen. He's a great guy like he's very reminds me of caleb a little bit our, our colleague yep. caleb joseph uh he's he's fun to talk to he's fun to watch catch he is super flexible and athletic behind the plate it's incredible like just watching him catch i swear there he receives some breaking balls i was talking to him about this today where like he has one knee on the ground and his legs stretch straight out and it's like his ass is like on the ground as he receives it and then he is still like braced in his core and able to pop up and throw the bases and manage running game. Um, he's an impressive like athlete for his age, really. I like watching him receive. I can't wait to watch him with like a Joe Siddle or a Buck yeah. Martinez, some of the catchers, Caleb, some of the catchers that we have around and kind of hear their take on it. So it's always fun to hear catchers 
on catchers. Brantley, by the way, caught Nate Pearson uh, in his first outing of spring. Uh, and Nate is like featuring this new curveball, which is really interesting. It's harder than his, his old curveball. If you remember uh, Pearson's curveball before, it was like, you know, kind of like the Bassett. Well, no one's is like Bassett, but it was like that mid 70s, yeah. like kind of big rainbow looping thing. He's throwing like this hard curveball now, which is sort of like low 80s. Yeah, like snapping it off. It gets on a hitter quickly. He thinks it's going to play better off of his fastball. He used it in the winter league, kind of developed it late last year, and then like really deployed it in the Dominican, liked the results with it. He wants to up his curveball usage this year. He's a guy who like is still his slider is going to be the primary like out pitch. That's going to be what he throws most often off his off his fastball. But I'm just interested to see how that curveball plays for him because it looked like he was landing some nice ones in the zone um which is huge for him first pitch can be huge for him as a you know surprise pitch in a fastball count and then if he can kind of bury it uh below the zone as well and get swing and miss i think it could be a weapon for him so i'm interested to see how that goes yeah nate pearson always an interesting guy to watch at this point probably slated to start in AAA. I think that's probably safe to say. Looks like it. We'll see how things shake out towards that back end of the Blue Jays' bullpen. We mentioned kind of the lack of optionable relievers and what that could mean. Uh, I haven't checked in with Mitch White in a while, and I should just see where he's at. I'm not close. Yeah. yeah. So maybe he's beginning the year on the IL, yeah. and then that opens a spot. Like You are going to want some length towards the back end of that bullpen. If you don't have Mitch White there... I mean, who does that open an opportunity for? Like, what kind of length is Nate Pearson giving you? Are you looking at him as just like a three, four, five out reliever? And then if you are, are you okay with carrying him and not having someone who could legitimately take like a full trip through or cover three to four innings if you needed? Yeah, and I think Trevor Richards almost can be that guy for the Jays who absorbs multiple innings if they need it. John Schneider saying just earlier this afternoon, he kind of likes Nate Pearson as an early game reliever. And, you know, that doesn't mean low leverage, but it could be earlier in the game because, you know, let's face it too. Like, even if the Yusei Kikuchi hype is real, even if this is, you know, best case scenario, is he going to see the seventh inning very often? You know, is, is like, it's just, it, it's not the game. It's not the way the game works. If you get two trips through from Yusei Kikuchi and it's gone okay, you're like, yep, let's off to the bullpen we go. And that's and, and that's the norm in Major League. The Jays actually have a very good starting rotation, so they have guys who can pitch into the sixth and seventh. But that's that's not a knock on Kikuchi. It's just the way the game has has shifted. And so if you have Pearson, even if he's going three four outs, that could work for you. Yeah, I wonder about Trent Thornton if he could fit in there. Like he's a guy who's seen that role before. We know the Blue Jays like him. Like spins the crap out of the ball. I'm sure he's working on some new pitches, like he always is uh, at, at this time of year. I mean, the Osferes of the Weta is on the 40 man now. Uh, the Blue Jays still committed to him as a starter uh, and are still going to start like have him starting games early in the season. Obviously, very likely at AAA. Uh, maybe some shorter starts just because there isn't a ton of workload there with the the years that he missed with the he had TJ and then he blew out his knee like three pitches into his return so like there just isn't like a base of workload those there so they're gonna have to be like very careful with sort of managing things this year and his innings and he's a guy who it's kind of the Tiedemann thing as well where they might start him slow because they're thinking hey in September October you might be really useful for us out of the bullpen in a postseason series like as a weapon with high octane stuff so 
I, I doubt Zulueta breaks with the club, but he would be another option for them as a guy who can provide some length. But I am very sure they will just pr prioritize his development and likely have him begin the year with some shorter outings just to manage his workload over the course of the year. All right, so we also have to get to one of the bigger storylines around right. the Jays. So the GM who won the World Series a few months ago, yeah, James like Clark. Yeah. yeah, he he is a longtime executive, came up with the Tampa Bay Rays, and then spent the last three years with the Houston Astros, a team that made the ALCS in three consecutive seasons, won the World Series last year. We can get into all sorts of questions there about, you know, how do you want to assign credit? It's probably futile, um, not necessarily the most productive way to, you know, try to assess these things. Um, but safe to say, this is an accomplished executive. You don't win the World Series by accident, even if you're given a good roster. And because of some of the issues with ownership there in Houston, Jim Crane offering a one-year deal. There's some questions as far as how we fit in with ownership. Dusty Baker's contract was also up. A lot of questions there. We don't need to answer all of those now. Um, and certainly we couldn't even if we tried uh, because there are a lot of factors there. But safe to say, James Click became available and was very coveted as an executive. At that point, Toronto Blue Jays have some discussions with him, bring him to Florida and end up signing him as a VP uh, in their strategy world, in their front office. So I guess just to begin, what do you make of this? Yeah, it's the defending World Series champion GM, right? Like that's a big deal. Like this is somebody who can head up a baseball operations group. This is somebody who would have touched all parts of like a model organization in baseball. When you look at the Houston Astros and before that, the Tampa Bay Rays. So like two models of player development, of ingenuity, of creativity, uh, it's just of you know finding every advantage possible and honestly of winning uh, in this um, in this game. So that's pretty incredible pedigree. As you said, James Click had options. There were other places that he could have gone. Uh, the Blue Jays brought him to Dunedin in January and he spent like a day and a half here kind of meeting everybody and working with various department heads and kind of getting a sense of what the role would be so they sold him on the role obviously effectively uh it sounds like he won't have a primary focus out of the gate whether that's development scouting whatever like it sounds like he's gonna kind of take time offering an objective viewpoint on processes across the organization which is like really useful coming from a guy with a significant r d background and coding background to kind of look at the blue jays models and look at the way that they make decisions and look at the way that they evaluate players and say like huh have you thought about doing it this way like huh like why do you do this like just kind of test the way the blue jays are making decisions and, and the way that they are operating like that's just going to be so so helpful to the Blue Jays, I think, and I think that's why Ross Atkins went out and, and targeted James Click and, and brought him in the way that he did. Yeah, I think you know bringing in a former GM to your organization is just such a low downside move, you know, and it's one that a lot of teams have done. You know, whether it's more recently, you think about John Daniels, longtime Rangers uh, chief of baseball ops, goes to the Rays. He's helping them now. The Jays have done it themselves with Ben Charrington here in Toronto. And we've seen Alex Anthopoulos take uh, time in Los Angeles, not with the GM title, um, but 
but still working in that organization. So it's really interesting, especially because, you know, I've been asking around about this in the last, you know, few days since uh, we learned that James Click was coming to Toronto and trying to get a sense for what these roles look like. And one theme that was reinforced to me in talking to people around the game about this is really just how different these roles can be from one organization to the next, because not everyone has the same ambitions. Not everyone is in a rush to get back to the GM's office as soon as possible. I, you know, doesn't seem like James Click is just, you know, trying to become a GM as quickly as possible. And each person brings their own different strengths. I mean, Brian Sabian, former GM of the Giants, goes to the Yankees, 66 years old. I mean, probably not having the same hands-on approach that he once did. I think that's safe to say. And Click, you know, he's not here to be a substitute to Ross Atkins. He's here to, as you said, oversee things and inspect and kind of learn what people need, learn what are the opportunities for the Blue Jays, what are the ways that they could actually improve the ways that they operate. And so, yeah, just, you know, the more I talked about it and, and thought about it, it's just a low downside move. Speaking generally, if you had the opportunity to go join a baseball, like a baseball ops department as an assistant GM, as a vice president, whatever and you had the leverage when you joined that club to earn a fairly you know decent pay grade because of the leverage that you had and because of the experience that you had and you got to just have a very high title on the front office page and dabble in a bunch of different departments see what interests you do different things get back to your roots some of the stuff that got you in the game in the first place and not have to go out in front of scrums of reporters and not have to take the heat when things go wrong and not have to have people like Ben and I saying, why did you do this? Like, why did you do that? That sounds kind of nice, right? Yeah. <laughs> it sounds like kind of, you know, you, you're involved in everything. You're on trade calls. You're making decisions on free agents and on extensions. You're evaluating players. You're looking at amateurs. Like you're doing all that stuff without having to face um you know the heat basically for when any of that stuff goes wrong speaking generally because i haven't talked to james click i don't know his motivation and hopefully we will get the chance to hear from him uh, that has not happened yet um but you know again speaking generally you know in talking to assistant gms there's some people who say that being an assistant gm is just the best job in baseball for some of the reasons that you said you know you still have some security and the the ability to make an impact in an organization and yet you know there are administrative tasks that go with you know if you're a gm you have a lot of direct reports you know that means you have a lot of year-end meetings and you know performance reviews those are the t hiring things like job interview hiring sessions that you have to be in on it's it's an, a manager it like it, it's in the title like it's an administrative job in some ways and the the other side of that is you get to make these decisions there is a thrill to it and i guarantee that you know for some of these executives there it's a thrill to be a general manager it's a thrill to be out there and have your reputation on the line and and have to there's there's a you know, there's a bit of a high to that, uh, I imagine. You're, all, um, you're also a public spokesperson, which isn't always the most fun thing to do. Uh, at least it doesn't look like I've never been one, but it doesn't look like one to me. 
Uh, and if you had the opportunity to do one of those assistant GM jobs remotely from your home, uh, where your family is and not have to like go move to another city and be coming into the office every morning at 6am, maybe still get a little travel sprinkled in there, right? You get to go on the, the New York, Boston trip or whatever, see some cool ballparks and go on the road for a week, come back home. You go up to where, whatever city, you know, your, your organization is based in for the trade deadline and, you know, big draft meetings and that you get to do the sexy cool stuff and then you get to go back home and be with your family yeah that sounds okay yeah note to any gms looking for further special assistance arden is up for the james click ask role <laughs> um yeah and, and i have just none of the uh, ability and none of the knowledge uh, or know-how you know i i think that really i would be the kramer <laughs> in, the, uh, in the front office just crackers in my briefcase sorry go ahead there is something uh, to be said though that for a certain personality type it actually would be more appealing to do that and again i'm not speaking about james click here i honestly don't know but i think for a certain personality type having the ability to make that impact and focus on baseball and only baseball would be appealing and then for others you know the the weight of talking to the media and having those obligations would be appealing obviously it's a coveted job for a reason and part of that is the you know everything that comes with it is you know both the good things and the more challenging things go with those positions especially when you've been in the number one role and you've seen what it is like so you've experienced it and you've seen what the grass is like on the other side of the fence yeah well, he's certainly seen it, and it got very green in Houston. I mean, to to win a World Series really doesn't get better than that. Um, and what he did in Tampa Bay too is like, while they you know they don't have World Series banners like Houston does, I mean, is you talk to anybody in this game, and they are like through the moon impressed with what Tampa Bay has been able to do on their budget. Yeah, absolutely. And so for the Jays, big market team. You can afford an executive like James Click. Like I don't see the Pirates necessarily going out there and getting him. It does take a certain amount of buy-in to add an executive of his caliber and just seems like a good thing if you're trying to win baseball games. You also get to mine his brain and his knowledge and what he learned in those organizations, what worked for them, right? He can now apply some of that stuff in Toronto. Like he can help you win. So as a GM, Ross Atkins making this decision and making this hire, you're like, this is a guy who's gonna help us win. If we win, we're sweet. As a GM, just win. Nobody calls for the GM's head when you're winning, right? So adding like somebody like that to your front office is a no brainer. Yeah, it really is. Um, and so should be really interesting to um, to hear more about James Click and how he fits in, even if the impact might take a while to reveal itself. Arden, before we get kicked out here, anything else that we should touch on on ATL? Man, I think uh, that's it. I've got a bunch more in the notebook, but maybe I'll save some for, for later in spring. Anything, anything on your end? That's it. That is it. So we'll call it we'll call it a wrap here for the March 2nd episode of At the Letters here from Dunedin, Florida. Thank you to our producers, Gaetan Harris and Nick Andrade for all of their work putting this together. Thanks to Arden Zwelling, and thanks to everyone for listening to At the Letters. <laughs> <laughs>